Hello and welcome to We Came From The 80s, the podcast where we talk about movies we mistakenly thought were cool. I'm your host, Farron. Heather, tell me your pain. Guys like us don't have family. I thought you were going to say that it was the movie that was your pain. Because it's certainly mine. No, because I... I watched it with riff tracks on and, and that oh, took the edge off. So fair enough. I watched it with the uh, director's commentary on it added extra levels of edge. So yeah. Ooh. So, so we're <laughs> doing things a little differently today. Uh, instead of just doing a movie, we're doing a movie and comparing it to the television episode it stole from. So the movie is star Trek five, the final frontier. And the episode is called way to Eden. So we'll get the, you know, here are the vital statistics. So obviously they're both starring, William Shatner, Leonard Nimoy, DeForest Kelly, James Doohan, Walter Koenig, Nichelle Nichols, and George Takai. The episode from Star Trek, the original series, was uh, season three, episode 20. It was called The Way to Eden, what everyone calls the hippie episode. It premiered on the 21st of February, 1969. It was directed by David Alexander. Uh, it was written by Arthur Heinemann and D.C. Fontana. Uh, Dorothy Fontana actually used her pseudonym, Michael Richards, for this because... It was the 60s, and a lot of women still, frankly, hid the fact that they wrote, either by, in her case, using DC or using a man's name, which sucks. It guest starred Skip Homier, who played Dr. Severin, the cult leader, and Charles Napier, who played Adam. By the way, he's still on the uh, convention circuit. I think it's kind of neat. I actually had a, a question about him. Sure. Was that actually him singing? Actual mm. singer? Because uh, the singing was... Not, Not as bad. sucky as I thought it would be. And I don't way, know. Way better um, than the singing in the second in the movie. That's that takes two seconds to check. Charles Napier. He won the part by jumping onto a table and singing House of the Rising Sun. Huh. Okay. Fair. Uh, so I'm guessing, yeah, he did. Nice. I guess. So we'll assume, yeah. It's funny, everyone dumps on this episode. I think it's great. I've always liked this episode because it's a Spock episode and it's a different Spock episode. But I I, I liked it. So anyway, you know, as far as rating goes, I mean, it was primetime television, so there's not really a rating. Like, television ratings, I don't think, really popped up until the 90s. The budget is a little hard to work out. The budget for the average Star Trek episode in that time was about $1.3 per episode. But I think they dropped it a little bit for the third season. That was a lot of money back then. Yeah. Uh, and how much it made, uh, I'm sure there's some bean counter at Paramount who could tell you that based on uh, ad revenue, but who the heck knows. The movie is Star Trek V, The Final Frontier. It premiered on the 9th of June, 1989. It was directed uh, by William Shatner. It was written by William Shatner, Harv Bennett, and David Lowry. Uh, you've seen Harv Bennett in this movie. He plays the Admiral uh, from Starfleet Command. That's Harv Bennett. Uh, oh. He had been with Star Trek since Star Trek II. In fact, doing con was Harv Bennett's idea. So at some point, Harv Bennett knew what the hell he was doing. They had Lawrence Luckinbill, who plays Cybok, and David Warner, who played Ambassador uh, St. John Talbot. And of course, he was, he's been in Star Trek a few times. He was in Star Trek VI. He played uh, the Chancellor of the Klingon High Council. You don't trust me, do you? I don't blame you. If there is to be a brave new world, our generation is going to have the hardest time living in it. He was in the two-parter next-gen episode, Chains of Command. He played the, uh, the Cardassian who tortures Picard. You know, there are four lights. Your daughter is lovely. Yes, I think so. And unusually bright. It's amazing, isn't it? The way they're able to sneak into your heart. 
I must admit, I was completely unprepared for the power she had over me. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I love I love that episode. It's yeah. it's an impressive episode, uh, and the movie was rated PG. So obviously, we do have budget and profit for this one. This one cost twenty seven point eight million, and it made fifty two million. But like you said, it probably had as much to do with everyone like Star Trek Four as anything else. Star Trek Four cost twenty five million, so a couple million less. And it made $109.7 million, quite a bit more. Because it was awesome. Oh, it was a great film. It was a great, great film. I don't think it's the awesomest that everyone thinks it is. Of the 234 trilogy, because it really is a trilogy, I think it's the weakest of the three, but that's me. For sure, but it, it does hold up the uh, even number theory. And it's funny because I love Star Trek The Motion Picture. I, I adore it. I love Star Trek Three. Star Trek Five is a shit show, as we're about to discover. Generations, I I enjoy. I don't think it's great, but you know it's pretty good. Then the next one is Insurrection, and yeah, that was a crash and burn. That was a two-hour episode. Yeah. But then the even one at the very end, Star Trek Nemesis. That one blows. That's a bad film. I don't think I've seen that one. Really? Where where uh, Data dies for the first time? (laughs) Yeah, not a not a great film. So let me tell you about the plot for one of these, and you tell me which one it is. The Enterprise is seized by a cult who wants to find the planet Eden where their religious fulfillment will occur. And their charismatic leader proves in the end he's willing to kill for what he wants. And in the end, he winds up dying for it. So which move, which of the two do you think that is? Yes. Yes. <laughs> William Shatner stole this plot like Completely. There's a story that Roddenberry was pulled off of the set for Star Trek The Next Generation. And he was brought into a meeting where they told him the story for Star Trek V. And he thought they were playing a prank on him. <laughs> what do you mean he's going to climb a mountain and fight God? <laughs> I, w- I wish it was. Yeah, it's, you know, and, and it's funny because he spent a lot of time, uh, Shatner spent a lot of time in the director's commentary talking about his story choices. And the first hint should have been, well, DeForest Kelly really pushed back on this idea. And Leonard really wasn't happy about this. And I wasn't really happy about this. Like, when your three main stars all say, this is bullshit, my character would never do this, that's a hint. You need a better script. Unfortunately, Star Trek V, I've always found, was a a gross act of ego, you know? Oh, 100%. Like the story goes that Leonard Nimoy had to beg to do Star Trek three and they begged him to do Star Trek four because he did such a good job. And it's like Shatner said, well, I'm the star here. If he can do it, I can do it. But no, Shatner was busy being a producer and he was in TJ Hooker and all this sort of stuff. Leonard Nimoy went back to being a teacher and to being on stage. He took, I think he took acting much more seriously than Shatner ever did. I mean, to be clear, Shatner was a hell of an actor. He was, he used to act uh, Shakespeare at Stratford in Ontario. But that doesn't make you a good director. No, it doesn't. (laughs) You know, it's like there are a lot of, I mean, there are a lot of Star Trek actors. I mean, Next Gen and DS9 and Voyager, they all became known as like director schools. A lot of these actors gave up acting and just became directors, including uh, uh, Roxana Dawson, you know, uh, Belana Torres, Robert Duncan McNeil, is that his name? We played Tom Paris. Uh, Jonathan Frakes, of course. He he directs a lot. Like a lot of these guys realize, you know what? My acting days are done, but I really am into this directing thing. And Shatner's not one of them. 
you know, Shatner's too busy being Shatner. Um, did which, did um, Frakes do anything good? He did. Well, the first movie he ever did was Star Trek First Contact. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That wasn't so uh, bad. I, I, I didn't mind that. Of course, Insurrection wasn't great. He did a number of episodes of Star Trek Picard. Oh, fair uh, enough. Yeah, he did a, some weird time travel t- uh, tween movie called Time Stoppers, which, you know, like Roger Ebert put it, he said, like, it's, it's, pre- it's adequately directed. Like, he's not a flashy director, but you will get solid output out of him. And he's known as, like, I think it's either two takes Frakes or three takes Frakes. Like, he works fast. Ooh. Though it's funny because I guess the, the schedule for Star Trek V was so bad that Shatner do like one take and then one of the actors says, can I do that again? Like, no, we're busy. We got to go on. E. Yeah. E. It's, yeah. There's the reality is this movie suffered from a bad director and a bad writer. Yeah. You know, he had all the actors. He had great actors. Lawrence Luckenbill did fine. David Warner is an excellent actor. We've seen him a few times, including of course, as Sark and Dillinger uh, in, mm-hmm. in Tron. He's good. He had everything lined up. Harv Bennett, you know, had done had done good by Star Trek. Star Trek's two, three, and four are his. So he was surrounded by people who knew what the hell they were doing, except you know him. And this is what <laughs> well, this is what happens, right? When you don't pay attention, like what was the was it? I think it was Goblet of Fire. Rowling refused to be edited because she was J.K. Rowling, and so the book is bloated. It's it's twice the size of everything else, yeah. Yeah, it's I don't giant. think it's twice, but yeah, it's huge, and it's and and the story itself is bloated. It's, it's too much, yeah. and this is what happens when you when you think too much of yourself. This is you know you sort of blow up. Uh, it becomes an act of ego, or like the Star Wars prequels. This Star, is what happens. Star Wars, when, yeah, yeah, when you don't listen, you know, or the the Star Trek remakes by J.J. Abrams. I mean, those are a disaster because he decided he knew better than literally generations of Star Trek writers and directors. Yeah. Well, he just crammed it into the formula. Yeah. And so, so not great. So we really aren't going to go through the, the story. I mean, I think we can just, because I mean, I just gave you the story. Well, you in just did. Yeah. 30 seconds. It's the same damn story, but I guess the way to do it, I mean, I took notes when I first prepped this episode, you know, two years ago. And so I'm going to sort of, I mean, I'm not sure where you're going to come at it from, but I want to, for me, I want to talk about the dialogue, the humor, <laughs> the production values, and then spend some time talking about the storytelling and especially the two cult leaders, Dr. Severin and Cybok. And one thing I think to notice right off, to note right off the bat, Roddenberry declared this movie apocryphal. It is not canon. And Paramount has respected that. Good, because yeah. that half-brother bullshit was pissing me off. And it didn't need to be. Like, there was no reason he had to be an actual half-brother. He could just as easily have been someone I studied with in my early years. Like, this is just a dude I knew. It worked well enough for Galena, the girl from, uh, you know, Chekhov's past. Yeah. Uh, though she was so poorly written. I, she's the one character who's just it was so yeah. badly written. But uh, So yeah, so this is considered apocryphal. It's the only movie that is. Uh, and that's good because it was a disaster. And And to give an idea of what the impact was budget-wise, when Star Trek VI came out, I mean, it was always going to happen because it was the 25th anniversary. They were given uh, almost, they had to fight for every penny for that budget. Uh, they brought in Nicholas Meyer, who directed Star Trek II. It was the only way Paramount was willing to do it. And he was given so little money that they weren't allowed to make new uniforms, even for the main cast. And some of these uniforms had been around since Star Trek II. So at that point, a decade. And they were worn. 
So they had to choose the blocking, like how they were positioned, based on, well, this guy's shoulder is worn out. We can't show that. So the first thing I want to attack here is the dialogue, uh, specifically the campfire scene. And I, I want to go after this because Shatner actually had the balls to say in his recording, you know, many people have said, so that's, that's your first indication that this is bullshit. Oh many people have said that this is the perfect example of the Star Trek character scene. That's yeah, ballsy. find me three. Yeah, uh, it, it's just like, really? It, <laughs> it's awful. Now, what I, as I understand it, they filmed that whole thing in one shot, but it's garbage. It's fan fiction. Yep. 100%. None of these characters seem... Well, they're so wooden. Well, they're wooden, and they're so two-dimensional, like, listening to McCoy come and get it, and, like, the way they're talking, and, you know, Shatner, I've always known I'll die alone. What? Bullshit. You know, and I, I still want to know what mar- what a marshmallow is. I, <laughs> like, it came across to me as just very clunky, like someone who didn't know the characters was writing it. Yeah. Spock is not ESL. Yeah, and and that's the thing. Like I just and the row 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 your boat thing that was amusing. That's the only part I actually kind of liked because it came off as people who had no clue, you know. And then later when he you know he he, uh, he quotes you know all I need is a tall ship and a star to steer her by, and McCoy gets the the poet wrong. Just the quote wrong, yeah. All I ask is a tall ship and a star to steer her by. Melville, John Mayfield. Are you sure about that? I am well-versed in the classics, Doctor. Then how come you don't know row, row, row your boat? That was cute. That was cute. Yeah. There's a few lines that I really appreciated. Yeah, but that's the problem, right? The fact is, you can say, oh, I appreciate that line, and that was cute. Yeah. What are they? Uh, that one? Not in front of the Klingons. Not in front of the Klingons. Please, Captain. Not in front of the Klingons. That, that's cute, and, yeah. Uh, what was the other one? Scotty, I know this ship like the back of my hand. Bonk. Which way to the turbo shaft? Head down that tunnel to the hydro vent and turn right. Then left at the blow screen. You can't miss it, Mr. Scott. You're amazing. There's nothing amazing about it. I know this ship like the back of my hand. And, and it's funny because I really hate that because it's so... Slapstick. You hate Slapstick. Slap- I hate slapstick, but it, name me one other time in Star Trek where humor is that base. Never. Ever. Ever. Not, not, not even in the new ones. No. I, I watched, uh, you know, for Star Trek's anniversary, which is the 8th, or maybe it's the 7th, I don't remember. Um, this was when I was busy, you know, reinstalling Windows for like the fifth time. I watched a bunch of Star Trek episodes, and the original series episode I chose was Shore Leave, which is goofy as hell. And yet it's way more intelligent. The dialogue is more intelligent. Everything's more interesting than this movie was. That was my other point about their, their campfire scene. Mm. Was this isn't the first time they've been together for sure. Um, I'm trying to think. Spock usually doesn't go with them. No, but like they've, uh. they've known each other for a long time. There's no way they'd be that awkward. Yeah, and even just the staging, like I noticed for a lot of it, Shatner was, um, was down on one knee. Who sits by a campfire on one knee? Who does no that? One. It's horribly uncomfortable. Yeah, like you do that if you're kneeling down because your sergeant is showing you the map in the dark. You don't do that if you're about to kick back for a night around the campfire. Like it was just, but all the dialogue is like, like, like in the officer's lounge when they're talking with Cybok, 
it came across as so stilted. I'm afraid of nothing. Okay, thanks, Kirk. You know, yeah, like I've seen better high school productions. Yeah. And, that, and it's funny because that's what I thought, like, this sounds like a high school play. Like, a, not written for high school, but written by high schoolers. Yeah. Or Uhura and Scotty. What the hell was that? Their romance. Like, that just... All of been... Uhura. Oh, yeah. She's a disaster. But he is... They could have done some interesting stuff with him. You know, like he says, I don't think I've ever seen him any happier with a ship that's broken. Okay, sure. But yeah. what the hell is up with Uhura? Like, I can't help but think she must have been pretty offended by that movie. Oh, yeah. She was so out of character. Yeah, it was brutal. But then all of them were like uh, when they find uh, uh, Chekhov and Sulu lost and they play that little hijinks where he blows into the into yeah. the microphone. You, it's a it's a snowstorm. And we can't see a thing like r- really yeah. like it, mm, no. And it, it just, Sulu wouldn't have got lost. Well, even if he would have, because it's the middle of the goddamn woods. The fact is, it's it was just like everything else. It's they came up with this idea, but didn't know how to write it in an interesting way. And I found that very frustrating. And that sort of leads to the humor, which is the humor is silly and it's slapstick. And it's, you know, I really love this movie when I saw it. It, Star Trek five is actually the very first movie I ever saw on my own. My parents were out of town and the, the friend of the family who was staying with us just dropped me off at the movie theater and I went on my own and I loved this film. But then I was hungry for Star Trek. And also I was a dumbass 14 year old and the humor. And I thought it was so funny, but that's because I was 14. Mm-hmm. Like this humor is teenage boy humor. It's just dumb. And everything is a punchline, no matter how serious things are. Whereas mm-hmm. in a good comedy, no matter how serious things or no matter how funny things are in Star Trek, they take it seriously. Like that's the comparison between this and shore leave. Yeah. You remember Shoreleave, right? On the, the planet with where anything they imagine comes true. Yeah. It's an inherently goofy scenario, and they all take it very seriously. But that's where the humor comes out of. Yeah. Watch. They're all still in character, too. Yeah. These are serious people. These are scientists and engineers who are doing a survey of this planet, trying to figure out what's going on around them. And they recognize the ridiculousness of what's happening, and yet they take it seriously. But that's what makes it funny. Because it's the straight man, you know, the idea that you have the yeah. comedic guy and the straight man, like uh, Abbott and Costello. Yeah. You know, Abbott is the straight man, Costello is the goofball. But that juxtaposition, yeah, yeah, that juxtaposition is what makes something funny. Even the triples one is less stupid than this. Yeah, and that's probably the goofiest episode. Yeah, like, and that's way less goofy. Yeah, in that episode, Kirk knows this is ridiculous. He keeps saying it, this is bullshit. Like, this is, this is absurd. What is the problem here? But that's what makes it funny. But here, everything is silly. The situation is serious, but everyone is being silly in it, and it makes no sense. And then you have this cult. Like, you know, like, <laughs> like they're being swamped by a cult. Where is that funny? Like, what's funny about a cult? It bothered me that, like, they were treating it like it was uh, like a mind control thing, and all he is is a, like an empathic Vulcan. Yeah. Um, that's like, he, does, well, he, t- he touches some of them. So yeah. I'm wondering if he's doing, that's the problem. They don't really, they never tell you what Cyborg's doing to them. Yeah. Like, is he giving them an emotional enema or is he messing with their head or what? Like, um, but we'll come to that. Any, anybody can give you a flashback about your past. Yeah. Like, it's uh, not going to make me follow you blindly into, into, a, into death. Damn it. 
I had plans for next week. Okay, anyway. Uh, <laughs> but <laughs> Not <yeah>. again. <laughs> Been there, done that. Um, but, I mean, you know, going back to the humor, I mean, think of, like, Sulu and Chekhov following the Klingon officer at the, round, at the end. She has wonderful muscles. Does that seem like something either of those characters would do? Chase Never. around some Klingon officer? Or how about the destroying of the, vo the Voyager probe, which was so flippant? Yeah. Uh, by the way, if considering the speed that probe is moving, if there was a Klingon warbird puttering around, they're deep in Federation space, and that's an act yeah. of war. Um, it sure is. You know, I mean, it is interesting to learn that the guy who played the captain and the first officer, the actors actually learned how to speak Klingon. They could fluently go back and forth between Klingon and English with their lines. Yeah. And it, and it sounds like it. Like, I, that is one of the few things I'm going to appreciate about this film is that Shatner made sure they actually spoke the language. I could tell. And, and, I did and appreciate it, that. Yeah. And that's actually one of the things that really excited me about uh, Discovery. The Klingons speak Klingon. Yeah. And I really like that. But just the way they sort of blow away Voyager, that's so flippant. Because remember, Voyager has made another appearance in this start in this film series V'ger from V'ger yep and they took that much more seriously now, now they didn't have to take this one seriously but it's sort of oh let's just blow away that that probe whatever why that yeah, because why not why is that in there you know what what was the reason for that other than to show he's this bored warrior you know I don't get it no so yeah I just there's a lot of things so then it sort of takes us to production values you mentioned that you know <laughs> Wade Eden had better production values. Did you notice when they were shooting up the turbo shaft that the numbers were wrong? Yep. Yeah. They were out of order. And they started at the bottom. Deck one is the bridge. And they go down, if you're curious. They're supposed to. So they had them in the wrong order. It's a ship. And, they were, and they were out of order. Yep. There were too many of them. Like, way too many. They stopped them with, like, deck 72. Like, at the end of Star Trek Four. Pocket Books produced something called Mr. Scott's Guide to the Enterprise, which is exactly what it sounds like. Oh, he could have. What? You, did, you didn't know this? No. Oh, I, this was like my Bible. I probably have it kicking around somewhere too. Oh, yeah, it was a big deal. And, it and, and over the years, there had been plenty of cutaway drawings of the refit Enterprise and the original Enterprise. I've got this massive poster of the Enterprise D, which is just amazing. The Enterprise D, which is quite a bit bigger than that one, does not have 72 decks. No. Like, he just, ah, fuck, make a bunch of numbers, who cares? Like, 72 decks, like, how big is 72 stories? I'm trying to think. I don't think we have a building that big in Calgary. Like, that's a Star Destroyer, 72 decks. Yeah. You know, I, it's not me being a, a Trekkie going, you know, pushing up my glasses and going, that's not correct according to, it's just, it looked bad. And the fact that they got the numbers out wrong, like, that's just, that's lazy. Yeah. But I will say that the officer's lounge is gorgeous. That set was fabulous. That was nice. You know, with I like the, the sh I like the ship's wheel. That was cool. It's exactly what I was about to say. It was beautiful. I loved everything about that officer's lounge. And in fact, I think that may be the first time they've shown an officer's lounge other than 10 forward. And I don't even think 10 forward had been sh introduced in next gen at that point. Because that's an, that's a season two thing. I yeah. think. No, no, it is a season one thing. No, Never it's mind. season one. It's been there that's forever. Right. Yeah, that's right. That's right. You know, the Great Barrier, uh, which, by the way, uh, Star Trek's mentioned the Great Barrier before in the uh, remade pilot where no man has gone before. It's at the edge of the galaxy. It's not in the center. Not of the at galaxy. the center. Yeah. yeah. Um, right, right, right. And it looked and it looked better in that in that 1965 pilot. Because uh, <laughs> here it's just blue dyed liquid. Like it's it's like 1960s level special effects. I mean, it looks interesting but it looks like an old special effect. 
I also don't understand, like, this is another production value thing. Why did they steal the music that Next Gen was using? I don't get that. Yeah. That, by the way, that music, of course, was not created for Star Trek The Next Generation. It's the music from Star Trek The Motion Picture. And I'm not sure why he chose it. Maybe because it came cheap, because he, he could get Jerry Goldsmith and only have him make a few pieces of music. But I did like the music from the beginning when he was climbing. It, that the, was the cool. Piece, yeah. The piece is called The Mountain. It's beautiful. Or the music when they arrive at Shakari, I thought was great. But of course, it's Jerry Goldsmith. Like I, I said, I always liked the music. Yeah. Yeah. He had, a, he had a great, great composer. He had great actors. He had a great producer, but he had a shitty director. Oh, right. That's him. Like, and, and that's what really frustrated me because everything we've talked about, let's actually, let's look at storytelling quickly because then we're going to, then we'll sort of swing, circle back to the way to Eden. Because okay, I, I want to rant about pacing a little bit. Okay, well, that'll come during storytelling, absolutely. Okay. So, first off, it was clumsy as hell, right? Nothing's given time to breathe except unimportant shit. Unimportant shit, right. Yeah. I, you know the uh, Shatner speaking pattern that everyone ma- makes fun of? I do know that, Heather, yes. <laughs> the whole movie was in that style. And that's because he directed himself. Yeah. You know, that's always a... Bad idea. Like, how <laughs> how long would that movie have been if they just took out the stupid pauses? I mean, I, <laughs> like I think ten minutes we, shorter, right? I think we're all very overly sensitive to the way he acts, and it's never as bad as I think we think it is. But it gets on our nerves because it is so different than the way everyone else. It's so much less natural than all the other actors around him. Well, there there were a few times there I just about fell asleep. Really? Like we were out stomping through the bushes in the river valley looking for rocks for a science project just before. And then I uh, came home and sat down and started watching the movie and like these long shots with no dialogue. I'm like, oh, that's nice music and a pretty picture. And <laughs> <laughs> hold on, watch it, watch the movie. Yeah. There were, there was three or four of those like yeah. overly long pauses. I'm like, well, yeah, it's the, the pacing was a problem. He didn't know how to pace the movie. A good example of just the problem with storytelling is the initial scene, which I think is the first time a Star Trek movie had a scene before the opening credits, which is when the bald-headed guy, whose name is John, and the only reason I know that is I read the novelization when I was a kid. By the way, that actor has been in Star Trek before. He was one of the Clayton gang inspector of the gun, the one that takes place in the Old West. Yeah, Cybox sort of shows up and does his thing. It's a nice conversation. I thought it was an interesting scene, but we don't know why John is crying. Unless you've read the book, his wife had just died, but you don't know that. Oh. And there's no hint of that. Show us the grave. Cybok doesn't explain anything, and you don't expect him to, but he never explains it. That should have been part of the reveal. Oh, this is how you're doing that. This is really what's going on here. But that never happens. Whereas with Dr. Severin, we do figure out what the issue is. He's insane. He's a sociopath, and... This is what enables him to do what he's doing. 
He's not a true believer. He doesn't have a power. He's a sociopath. You know, say whatever it takes. Yeah. Uh, whereas with Cybok, I don't know. No, no you know? idea. Not yeah. a clue. The campfire scene, as I said, it's it's all bad jokes. It tells us nothing that except that Kirk has become a narcissist, which is more about how Shatner envisions Kirk than who Kirk really is. You know, I have no issue with the with the climbing. It's just they never really like the whole thing with the, that whole you know that whole sequence with him and Spock. You you must be one with the mountain. Really, oh. that's something Spock was going to say. Really, um, no, again, it's, Sulu- it's it's not. And the ski boots, come on. Yeah, that well, I mean, that was just a you know poor uh, a poor choice of um, yeah uh, you, yeah. But uh, the idea of a skeleton crew being sent on a mission like this is ridiculous. Nope. On a broken uh, ship. Yeah, no, there's just I'm sorry, it, that was ridiculous. Unable to communicate uh, because they're you know, they're in space dock, like. You know, they had tr- remember they had trouble communicating, and yeah. it's like they're in space talk. Like the the admiral was on Earth. You could see in the background. I think the, the Golden Gate Bridge. You could have beamed up. The scene was silly. Yeah, it's like everything else. Why are you doing this? You should always ask yourself, why are you doing this? Like it's fine. The Enterprise A is broken. Okay, whatever. But why is there no crew? Why is more security not being sent? You're literally being sent to deal with a hostage situation from a group that identifies themselves as an army. Yes, let's send the ship with four guys. Like, Seriously. they're in space dock. They're orbiting Earth, the capital of the Federation and the headquarters of Starfleet Command. I think they can find a few guys. Just, they could just put saying. together a crew. Just, yeah. yeah. Like, yeah. It, like, it wouldn't be that hard. Yeah, it's just... And, and, and the whole idea is, of course, they're trying to make it easy to take over the crew. Like... But Wade Eden didn't need any of that. They had a full-on crew. They found a way to make that cult and the what they do to the ship make sense because they made it about the cult. This was just clumsy. Yeah. So anything else you want to beat Star Trek V with or you want to sort of go back to Wade Eden? Because then we'll, well get I'm, into the cult. I'm, I think I'm happy with <laughs> leaving it there. So yeah. let's go back That's over nice. all those things with Wade Eden. So the dialogue, I thought, in Wade Eden was good. Yeah. Like, it was perfectly reasonable. The characters, the, there's humor in the episode, but the humor doesn't seem out of place. Like there's nothing wacky about it, even though you're dealing with like space hippies. Yeah. All the characters react in character and uh, all the humor fits. Yeah. Like at one point where, you know, where Kirk says, what is a Herbert? And Spock <laughs> has it to explain it to him, and he sort of swallows and says, I'll try to be less rigid in my thinking. This was written by people in the 60s who looked at the hippies and sort of shook their head and didn't get it. Yeah. You know, and I get that. Like, let's have them dress like flower power 60s hippies. And I think for us, we grew up in a world where hippies were gone or were aging, and we sort of laugh at them, but they were a serious movement. You know, it was a serious youth movement. And I, I still think they gave them more respect than they allowed Cybok's cult to have. Because mm-hmm. Cybok's cult is mindless. Whereas, you know, we only really learn about two of the cult members, Adam and, is it Ileana, I think is her name? Yeah. Che- the one Chekhov knows. Chekhov's ex, yeah. Yeah. And, like, we, we learn a lot about them. Like, there's, like, they take them seriously. They show the characters respect. Whereas, it's really just Cybok and a group of mindless who-knows-whats. Are they all farmers? Did he grab a crew from another ship? Like, he got there somehow. I don't, you know, like, we don't know. The humor in the episode, I thought, was, it was typical humor for the Star Trek, Star Trek series. It's, it's cerebral, but it's not overly so. It's just, it's consistent with the rest of the series, whereas next, or whereas uh, Star Trek V isn't. No, it's totally different tone, but yeah. yeah. Uh, the production values, I mean, you know, the costuming is what it is in a 60s it's typical, series. Yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, it looked good. The the uh, the guitar that a- that Adam had, I thought was fine. Um, mm-hmm. The silly wheel she had looked like it was like a, a bicycle wheel they put together. But OK, <laughs> totally. whatever. I mean, his ears were OK. His ears were his ears. Dr. Severin. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah not great. You know, and you could actually see on Adam's forehead the ball cap. You could see where yep. they had folded. You could see the, yep. Yeah, you know, on his temple. Well, but other the, than that, the, the ambassador's kid too. You could see the bad cap. Yeah, but overall, I thought they looked great. And yep. you understand, like this is what you expect from a movement. I don't expect that from Cybok's people. So, like Cybok is gathering people as he goes. I get the impression he sort of started at point A and point B was paradise city and he collected whoever he could find along the way and most of these people maybe had only been there for a few days they have no money they took whatever whereas as spock points out several members of severin's cult are accomplished scientists including severin himself didn't they say severin was a medical doctor no i thought he was an engineer or something an engineer because at one point he says you could run the tests yourself maybe it's just because he's such a good doctor or really smart yeah yeah what i really want to talk about though is the cults for these two yeah so on the one hand you have cybox cult which is all about facing pain your pain runs deep what do you know of my pain let us explore it together (laughs) each man hides a secret pain it must be exposed and reckoned with. It must be dragged from the darkness and forced into the light. Share your pain. Share your pain with me. And gain strength from the share. Like you said, I could force you to face your pain, whatever it is. But you're not going to follow me to the ends of the universe over it. And that's why when Spock and McCoy don't react, it's like, well, what did he do to those others that he didn't do to Spock and McCoy? Yeah. They're not the only two people in the galaxy with disciplined minds. Yeah. Like he swallows up Chekhov and Uhura and Sulu. These are not dumb people. Nope. They all, they're all very disciplined people as well. I was just going to rant about Uhura again. because Do it. Okay, the, the real Uhura would have been disciplined and resistant. And she spoke several languages. She was a translator. She was a, a code breaker. Yep. There's no way. And she wasn't the dirty dancer. Yeah, I mean, in fact, uh, Nichelle Nichols was a dancer. That's what she did before. And I think that's what she went back to after. But yeah, like it oh, was. Oh, was she? Oh. Yeah. But right, that, right. Yeah, but that scene was gross. Yeah. Like it was. Like, I get it. The fan dance, ironically, traditionally, the fan dance is for dancers who are a little over the little mm. over the hill who don't want to show you their goodies anymore. Like, you probably don't want to see them. That whole scene came off as other than the one shot of the of the cult members going up the uh, the dune, which is a mm. well-made shot. That whole bit of the of the, the, of the scene movie was, was garbage. Terrible. You know, Uhura would have told Cybok to fuck off during the original series, let alone when she's much older much more experienced, much more mature, you know? Yeah. I would have expected Chekhov to fall for Cybok back in the day. But then he didn't even fall for his own girlfriend's cult back in the day. So it's like these people are less mature than they were 15 years previous when they were on the ship. You know, yeah. like, and I don't get that. The only thing I can think of that change, that, that you know, the difference between Cybok and the, and the lack of effect he has on McCoy and Nimoy as opposed to the other, is he doesn't touch him. He touches mm. John, the bald dude at the front. So maybe it is a mind meld and he's messing with them. 
And maybe, maybe yeah. giving them this sort of emotional enema is cover. It's only what you think is is happening. While he's giving yeah. you something to smile and thank him about, he's actually hypnotizing you sort of thing. I don't get it. It makes no sense. And that's the problem. That we're guessing, and then we've probably put in more thought than Shatner did, and that's what's frustrating. Now you look at the way that Severin's cult works. They talk to people. They have ideas. And yeah. Spock knows who these people are. He never explains how it is he knows about their movement, but clearly he does. Maybe it's because he's been following um, Dr. Severin. Who knows? Yeah, but, that's the impression I got. Yeah. So something I, I sort of found is, you know, these are all over the internet, are these sort of these lists of sort of aspects of a cult. Mm. So we'll go through them and let's go through and, and compare them to Severin and Cybok. So one, submission, complete unquestioning trust in the leader. Attention, everyone. Let's all give thanks to the leader for this glorious day. The, the leader, leader is good. The, the leader, leader is great. We surrender our will as of the state. The leader is good. The leader is great. We surrender our will as of the state. Check. Exclusivity. The group is the one true belief system. Yeah, well, Cybok, it's hard to tell because they're just following him. No one ever says there's other way. Like, the other ways are bad. Just here's where we're going. We never actually f found out what the belief was either. Well, he wants to see God. Right, but, but what do his followers believe? That's the problem. We don't know. <laughs> Whereas Severn, I don't think it's that they think that everyone else is wrong. It's that they think they're right. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. I don't think there's so much exclusivity. There's a little more of it in Severn's cult, but not many. Uh, persecution complex, absolutely. Oh, Both 100%. of them. Oh, yeah. Um, you, you know, it's us versus them. You're oppressing us. You know, in Severn's case, it's paranoia. It's, it's flat out pathological. Control. Control, uh, members' actions are controlled through indoctrination or a threat of losing salvation. That is certainly true in Cybok's case, because when McCoy and Nimoy say, no, we're not going with you despite what you've shown us, he makes them stay in the officer's lounge. Mm -hmm. Like, he literally denies them access to... Yeah, he locks them in their room. He locks them in their room. Severance called, I don't think, ever really gets enough time to offer someone, you know, if, you, if you're like us, you can come with us and live on Eden. They're prepared to kill. But definitely their actions are controlled. Like they are all willing to do what they know will result in the death of the crew. Because remember that whole concert they hold is because Severn has told them to do it, to lure the crew into a sense of security, mm -hmm. you know? And even when he's setting up the Sonic thing and Ileana says, this will kill. And he says, no, 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 no. I, I know much more than what the textbooks say. And then the guy says, no, no, it's going to kill. And he says, yeah, he's got them. Even that small flicker of doubt came up after they were warned that he was sick and crazy. Yeah. And she goes along with it anyway. Yeah. They all, they all do. They're like, yeah. All she had to he hear from him was, yeah. yeah. All she had to hear from him was no, no, I know better than the textbooks. You remember it won't hurt them. And she says, Oh, okay. Five isolation, minimizing contact with others. Actually, I, I think that's, it's the opposite in both cases. Severin's group are evangelical. Like they want people to join them. Like, how do you wear that many clothes? How do you breathe? You know, why don't you join us? Remember, they at one point, they actually tried to convert Sulu. You don't belong with them. You know what we want. You want it too. Come, join us. How do you know what I want? You're young. Think young, brother. You make it tempting. And in Cybok's case... I think that might have been a tactic, though. I don't know. The comments seem to come... Like, this is before Severin tells them to go out and make friends it just seems to be like things they say like why do you wear so many clothes as he says to check off um it's hard to tell though like severin isn't saying don't talk to people it's quite the opposite uh, yeah, but he's looking for uh, he's gathering intelligence on the ship how to take it over yeah yeah 
but you know that's another reason to not keep people away. Like if you look at uh, any of the you know the cults that are kicking around today, they don't want people talking to others. They have specific evangelical groups that go out there, like recruiters. Six, love bombing. That's when you sort of find a new member, pour all sorts of love and attention on them in the hopes of winning them over. And that's absolutely what Ileana does to Chekhov. She mm-hmm. love bombs them. In Cybok's case, I think that's how he gets in. Like this emotional enema, which sounds gross, but I can't think of another way to put it. But that's a love bomb. Look how much I care about you that I'm going to free you from this. You know, it's not the same as an actual cult where everyone just sort of puts their arm around you. Hey, buddy, you're one of us. Isn't it awesome? I love the leader. Uh, special knowledge. Yeah, right there. Yeah. I know something that will make my life better and you don't know it. For the hippies, it's dressing the way they do and not following the rules and finding the primitives. And for Cybok, it's I don't have the special knowledge, but I know where to get it. Eight, indoctrination. Well, yeah. Teaching the group is, you know, the, the teachings yeah. are drilled right in. Yeah, that's right there. Uh, nine, salvation. Oh, yeah. Eden, oh, is, yeah. Eden is their salvation in both cases. Only the primitives can cleanse me. I cannot purge myself until I am among them. Only their way of living is right. I must go to them. Your very presence will destroy the people you seek. Surely you know that. I shall go to them and be one with them. Groupthink? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. I think in both cases. Cognitive dissonance, which for our, I know you know what it means, but for our listeners, cognitive dissonance means I know A is true, but I choose to believe B. And that's Severin, quite specifically, he knows damn well he cannot live among a non, like a, a technologically primitive species because he needs to be somewhere where everyone around him is inoculated or can be inoculated. And in Cybok's case, he's clearly not a stupid guy. No one is dumb on Vulcan. Like, they're really well-educated. You know, like, I remember in the first yeah. episode of Enterprise where T'Pol is looking over the Enterprise's tractor beam and she says, uh, Vulcan children play with more advanced toys than this. So shunning. Stay with us or off you go. I don't, I, well, I mean, Cybok does that when McCoy and, and Nimoy refuse to play along. He says, okay, you're, you're not cool. You can't be with me. 13 gender roles. I don't think that works for either of them. No. We also don't get enough time to, to really learn. And appearance standards. Certainly for Severance people, for Cybok, mm. I don't think he cares. No, like, not at all. It's funny. When I watched this last night, Something occurred to me, an experience from my own life when I was part of a cult. Okay, no, not really. It explains how these cults work. So I'm going to relay it to you. So bear with me. When I was, like, my first degree was ancient and medieval history. And I took a course, uh, a graduate level course in Greek and Roman religion. And about a third of the way through the course or halfway through the course, whatever it was, Dr. Bertolin created all the cue cards with lists of small, obscure religions slash cults that existed in the Greek and Roman world. And I got some little one called uh, the, the religion of Jupiter Dolacanus, which is boring. But uh, one woman who was actually, this is the 90s, she was actually an old hippie, like an honest to God hippie who had grown up and, you know, still very much dressed that way and still very much thought that way, but had gotten on with her life. She traded around until she got the cult of Bacchus. Nice. Now, for those of our listeners who don't know, Bacchus was the, was the Greek god of wine and revelry. So when you hear about a Bacchanal, it's essentially a drunken, gorging party, which may or may not have sex. But if you hear about a wild party, a Bacchanal comes from Bacchus. And the way 
uh, Dr. Bertolin had us do this is you were given, I think it was 15 minutes or 20 minutes to present everything we needed to know about that religion to the class. And so the way she did it is she was comparing her experience as a hippie in the 60s, because she, and she was American. In fact, she, she came from San Francisco. So like right in the center of the movement, she compared it to the cult of Bacchus. And so she was talking about it at the beginning and she said, now listen to the lyrics of this song. And she played like Age of Aquarius or some such thing. And she's standing there and she's grooving to it. She's literally dancing and singing along. And we were all sitting there and sort of looking at each other, you know, like that embarrassed look, like, oh my God, what is she doing? Like, you feel embarrassed for her. And then she talked about how it was very free. It was all about being free and doing what you want and free love and, you know, enjoy the wine, enjoy the parties and all this sort of stuff. And she says, but then it started to change. And she started to talk about how the hippie movement, much like the cult of Bacchus, started to look inward a little more and say that, well, maybe we don't want others to join us. Maybe we're happy with ourselves. And she played some other song. I honestly don't remember what it was, but same thing. She's grooving along. And we started to pay attention because we realized she was making a point. She wasn't just loopy. And she says, and in the end, the hippie movement turned angry and it turned violent. And she played uh, the Beatles songs, Revolution and Helter Skelter. And she talked about offshoots like um, Manson and the, the Manson family. And she talked about the weather underground, uh, which was, a uh, well, they were terrorists. They blew up government labs to protest uh, uh, university scientists' involvement in the Vietnam War. And she talked about how in the, in the cult of Bacchus, they started killing people. In fact, they started killing each other. And that 20-minute presentation represents one of the biggest revelations I'd ever had academically, mostly because I learned that maybe I should listen before I judge because she made an immense point. But also she was connecting the cult of Bacchus, which died out 600 years before Christ or 500 years before Christ, and a movement in the 60s that she lived through that were very much the same. And I see that in both of these movements, in Severin's cult and in Cybok's cult. In Severin's cult, he's first convinced them. I mean, I imagine a lot of it was just sort of hanging around at first and smoking space dope or whatever it was. And then it became stealing a ship and being willing to blow up that ship and risk their lives doing it. And then, when, you know, trying to, you know, to turn the crew when that didn't work, they were willing to kill the crew to get where they wanted. And when they got to Eden and they realized Eden was going to kill them, it's like they didn't care. My guess is that the barefoot ones would have known right away they were being burned. And yet Adam, wearing those wild hooker boots, you know, he wanders deeper into the forest and he eats an apple. He's already got to know that this place is not suitable because he's probably seen it burn his friends. And then there's Severin, who returns to the ship and decides in the end to commit suicide. In a 45-minute episode, he has done what the hippies did and what the cult of Bacchus did. And Cybok, you know, it's, it's clumsier because it's badly written, but it's the same thing. He starts off as an academic on Vulcan. He leaves Vulcan because he feels persecuted. He gathers an army. He attacks a settlement. I don't know what he did with those security guards because they don't go back to the ship with Kirk, Spock, and McCoy. So maybe he killed them in the fight. Who knows, right? He's willing to risk the ship. The only thing that changes is that at the end, he has a revelation. He realizes he's wrong and he sacrifices himself as penance. It's the same arc. Innocent turns inward, gets ugly, gets violent, ends in death. And that's realistic. You know, think about 
It's terrible. We always say, you know, try drink the Kool-Aid. But of course, they didn't drink the Kool-Aid. It was forced on them at gunpoint. There, there's a cult that started off as just a church and got uglier and uglier and uglier until in the end, you know, the, the Jonestown Massacre. One thing I really appreciated about the way to Eden was that the mm-hmm. cult leader had his own very different reasons for what he was doing yes. than what he had his followers believing. Yes. And, and a lot of it is his cases. He was, he was mentally unstable. The interesting thing is that it's clear that they didn't care and how much of that is they've invested too much to admit they were wrong. Mm-hmm. We see it all over the world. There's nothing specific. There's, there's nothing particular about it where you invest in something no one wants to believe they're hoodwinked. So you double down. That's yeah. human psychology. And so Adam and Ileana and the rest of them, they're willing to do this and they need very little convincing. Cybox people are just an army. Mm-hmm. Though, again, I'm not sure if they were in control of their own minds. Yeah, it, it, like, it, it doesn't seem like they were an established cult. Like the, the way the Eden one was around for longer, it seemed like, and they yeah, established well, themselves. And there yeah, was, well, Spock knew about there was, there was literature on them. Mm-hmm. But Cybox cult was just followers you picked up through the desert. Yeah. And, you know, it's funny that the movie's only an hour and a half, I think. Yeah, it's, oh, no, sorry, it's, it's 146, it's, but it's, still. It's full, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's 146. And I, ha- I can't help but think that 15 minutes of dialogue would have benefited the movie greatly because they could have spent time talking like, okay, so Spock, or sorry, Cybok left Vulcan. Why? Was it because they thought he was batshit crazy? Is it because he was gathering a cult and they sent him on his way? You know, who knows? They, they or did, did he... say that. Dude, they did. They did? It's because he, he rejected their logic and embraced his emotion. Right. Okay. That's fair. But it would have been more interesting if they'd said, well, he, charted, he, he was starting to gain followers and, you know, we had to throw him off the planet because we recognized he was dangerous. Or he had this weird power where he was he had, yeah. misusing the mind meld or yeah. explained something. Yeah. Like, and that's the thing. Like, the impression I gotten as a kid is that it was the mind meld that was doing it. It's only now that I wonder, is the whole emotional release thing a bait and switch? Because yeah. on people who aren't predisposed to follow him, like Leonard, uh, Leonard McCoy and, and, and Spock, they have something like they're not the dregs who have nothing else who go, sure, I'll follow you. I got nothing else. They have careers. They have loyalties. They have laws they must follow. Yeah. The bald dude at the beginning, he doesn't have any of that. He's digging holes. Presumably, I guess he's looking for water or something. He's got nothing. Water or something. You know, that's why cults work on, like, cults don't generally work on the wealthy dude who's got it all, though that's not always true. No. I mean, the next, the Nexium cult certainly worked that way, and those cults play <laughs> the, on... The Umbrella Academy one was, was Rich Guys. I, I never saw that, actually. I, well, I'm, just not, I'm just not a comic book Netflix. guy, I guess. Yeah, yeah, well, it's, but it's, it's a... The Netflix, well, yeah, I, I read the comic books a thousand okay. years ago, but I've, I've also watched the Netflix thing, and the, there's a cult in it. Oh, okay. Cool. Uh, <laughs> Ooh, now watch it. I love cults. Um, but, uh, you know... Season two. Season two, okay. Cybok is a very poorly formed cult. Severance cult in 45 minutes in the 60s when they had to be super careful about the uh, the things they talked about. I don't think that Manson was on the radar when this show was mentioned. And there's no way Paramount or, you know, or CBS... Really, it was CBS. Was it CBS or NBC? It was NBC. I don't even remember anymore. Whatever. The network 
there was no way they were going to let them reference the Manson cult, even if they knew about it. No chance. Yeah. The Manson cult, you know, I think we often forget, wasn't just one asshole going around. This was a group of people who committed slaughter. Like Sharon Tate wasn't just murdered. They carved the unborn child out of her belly and wrote die pigs on the wall in blood. Like, my God. There's a reason why these people all died in jail. Like, they were never getting out. But he was an, even by the standards of the time, he was extreme beyond extreme. You know, so I, and I don't think that ever sort of penetrated into Hollywood, uh, certainly not into network television. But, you know, he still, like I said, follows that arc of innocent to inward looking to violent to deadly. And I was impressed by how intelligently Severn and even Adam and Ileana, they come across as. Like, I kept saying to myself, why is Ileana playing so stupid? She was a a cadet at the academy. That's a university. That's like going to Annapolis. Yeah, she was a scientist. Yeah. So she's not dumb. Why is she asking these things? She's a honeypot trap. She's there to flutter her eyelashes at Chekhov and, and find out what she needs about the ship. She knows damn well what auxiliary control is. She was in Starfleet. You know, there's no way she doesn't know what this is. You know, even if she left in her first year, presumably at some point she was aboard a ship, even if it was just in space dock. You know, she's not an idiot, but she's playing him. And Adam is playing Spock. And Spock, interestingly enough, is played. Actually, it's one of the things... To be fair, everyone sneers at that episode and they say, oh, Spock wouldn't do that. He wouldn't go with them. I had no trouble believing that Spock not only knows about this cult, probably because he probably because he may have followed Dr. Severin's uh, scientific work and Mm -hmm. fascinated as to why someone would turn against science that way. And maybe that learned, you know, that led him to, oh, what's this cult? What's that about? Um, Because, you know, he's Spock. He knows a lot of stuff about a lot of stuff. I had no problem understanding an outsider like Spock who feels so isolated on that ship, trying to understand a group of people who have so much more connection to their society, yet feeling disconnected. I I have no trouble looking at him and saying, yeah, I get why you want to understand these people. Also, I think we often forget that Spock was a counterculture icon in the 60s. Yeah. There were some very cool signs I saw. I grok Spock which is a cool, you you get the Igrok part, right? It's a reference to Stranger in a Strange Land by Heinlein. To say Igrok oh. you is to mean I truly understand you. That's one of like, if you're looking for hippie science fiction, yeah, go there. Yeah, no, I, I haven't I never, read that one actually. You know, I read it because everyone said it was amazing. And at one point, Tom Hanks wanted to, to write, to do the movie. It never went anywhere. It is like Dune. It is truly a work of its day, but even more so. Mm-hmm. Um, but Igrok Spock was very much sort of, I'm not sure what the term would be, but that was a very 60s thing to say. You know, I get Spock. Like, he was sort of the counterculture guy. He was different than everyone else. And the idea, and he was a musician. He played that cool harp of his. And I had no trouble imagining him sitting him down and sitting down and doing a jam session with the hippies. Totally. Why not? You know, who else does he have a chance to play with? He played for Uhura one time, didn't he? I think so. I, I believe he did, yeah. Yeah, when she sang... And he yeah. showed up and played for her. So he's willing to do it. He is a little bit relaxed. I thought that was neat. Again, I had no problem understanding why he could dig these people, for lack of a better term. He yeah, digged them. It was consistent with his character, for sure. Yeah. Or maybe that's because we've lived the whole, our whole lives with him having done this. And we go, yeah, sure. When I look at all the stuff leading up to that, I have no problem with that. I have no problem imagining him being enough of an outsider to understand them. And then saying, well, logically, I should be the one to deal with them because I 
I know something about them. If nothing else, he's done the reading. Yeah. He did the the homework. (laughs) For sure. So overall, Star Trek V, again, we could go blow by blow, but I, I don't see the point. The problems we've talked about, we've mentioned the things we like. Is there anything else about Star Trek V that you like that you want to you want to bring up? Not particularly. <laughs> okay. Um, I think I think we pretty much covered it. Um, I'd agree. Like I, you know, there's there's scenes where some of the shots were really good, like the cultists climbing up the the dune to go after Uhura. I really like the shot of them coming around the mountain, the sun in the background. Mm-hmm. That was cool. I, yeah. It turns out they had to time that exactly. They had to figure out exactly what time of the day to get the shot. I really like the opening scene with John. I mean, it, it lacks a lot of context, but it's still a, a powerful scene. But the problem is it loses all its power because they never explain it. Yeah. Um, we never truly understand. That is the biggest sin of the movie. We never truly understand what Cybok was up to. The camera work is mostly clumsy. The music is good, but of course it is. It's Jerry Goldsmith, but it's lazy. It's like they, they saved money by saying, I just used that theme you used before. Yeah. Um, they probably got a deal on it because it was being used for next gen as well. Uh, <laughs> the special effects were eh, whatever the set design. I, again, I really, really liked the, the officer's lounge. I like the, uh, the bridge. I really, really mm-hmm. like that, but I've always liked that bridge set though. It turns out they've always had to rebuild it after every movie because every movie they assumed would be their last. So, <laughs> so, so they've always said. So they always just throw everything out. People forget that Picard's chair wound up in a dumpster. Yeah. What were they thinking? But uh, the movie is just a disaster. There is a reason it is considered apocryphal. If you were to say, I want to watch these movies and understand Star Trek, I would say skip five. Yeah. Don't bother. It it, it doesn't add anything. And in fact, when I do Star Trek movie marathons, and I haven't done one in a decade, I skip five. Yeah. Because it's so painful. It doesn't Um, fit. Yeah. No, it doesn't fit. Because it's fan fiction. Yeah. And there's no reason for that because Shatner's, well, Shatner's proven he doesn't understand character. He's always proven that. But Harv Bennett should have known better. Again, this is where a good director says, okay, stop. That doesn't sound right. And in the scene in the officer's lounge where where McCoy and, and Spock face their pain, both actors strenuously objected to it. In fact, Nimoy objected to everything. He should have thought, you know, Nimoy thought that Spock should have shot Cybok that he wouldn't back down and they had to sort of negotiate, well, what would stop Spock from doing that? It's like, well, maybe if he was like a brother. So that's how they came up with the half brother bullshit. When you're actors who have been living these parts for this is, you know, this is the late eighties. So that 20 some odd years when they've been Mm. living these parts and they say to you, no, that's bullshit. You should listen. It doesn't mean you'll always go with what the actor says, but you should at least be willing to listen. Shatner seems to have not listened. And that's frustrating. Mm-hmm. The third season of Star Trek is often derided as the worst of the three because Roddenberry had left. He tried a negotiating tactic. It didn't work and he felt he had to leave. And so it lacks that spark that the first two seasons had. And yet they chose DC Fontana, who has written some of the definitive episodes, including Amok Time. That's the one on Vulcan with Ponfar. Yeah. They chose a, a serious Star Trek heavyweight because they still respected the material. You would expect Shatner to respect it at least as much as the people who were left holding the bag when Roddenberry walked away, but they really didn't. Apparently not. Yeah. And I think that's just sort of where it's left. Like, you know, there's this serious idea of these cults and Wade Eden takes it seriously and Shatner just did not. So, and I, I'm not sure what else to say. Is there anything final you want to add? Uh, No, I don't think so. (laughs) Okay. Um, yeah. so would you recommend Star Trek five to anyone? No. 
How about the Wade Eden? Yes. And that's where I stand. It's like, if you're watching yeah. the original series, if I had to pick, like, say, 10 episodes of the 80, that would absolutely be one of the episodes. Um, mm. That would, you know, that would be, I mean, there are many excellent episodes, but I like this one as an example of the third season. I think it, it's, a, you know, it's, it's a reminder that there are good third season episodes. There are plenty of bad ones, but there are plenty of bad ones, period. Yeah, fair. Um, it, it, it is a good sample of the third season. Yeah. Yeah. And I really enjoyed it. And, you know, I, Star Trek V is a good example of nothing except what happens when someone who shouldn't direct is allowed to direct. Yeah. Especially shouldn't be allowed to direct himself. Nimoy did well in Star Trek Three because he didn't have to direct himself. He's only in one scene, right? <laughs> yeah, just, at, at just the, the one, yeah. But you know what? That takes yeah. an enormous amount of weight off you because now you don't have to put yourself in the film. Yeah. So I think we'll leave it there. I'm going to go explore someone else's pain. Uh, you're off to find Eden, I assume. Sort of. <laughs> put your kid to bed, one or the other. and it's, uh, it's, it's almost paradise. And I guess we'll leave it there then. All right. Good night, everyone. <laughs>